This morning we look at about the third message in our series. I think it's the third message in our series when bad things happen to God's people. This morning's message is kind of similar to that entire title, When God Doesn't Make Sense. You ever had moments in your life when God didn't make sense? Things happened in your life that you couldn't understand. What in the world was God doing this for? I didn't deserve this. I can't see how this is ever going to help me. When God doesn't make sense, it happens to us all. story is told of a group of vacationers who were rafting down one of our great western rivers, like the Rogue River in Oregon, or the Colorado River in Arizona and Utah, or the Snake River, the Salmon River in Idaho. And they were rafting down one of those great rivers, and they came, of course, to the whitewater section of the river. That's really the reason they get in the raft, isn't it? I mean, just to float down the river doesn't really float anybody's boat. But to get down that river and hit that white water, that's the reason that you really go on those rafting trips. They hit the white water, and of course, the guide was a man with a lot of experience on that river. He appeared to be handling the wild water well, using his paddle like a rudder to avoid rocks in the river. But then the passengers saw ahead of them a huge, colossal rock, and it seemed like their raft was heading straight for it. And the water was propelling them very quickly toward that rock and they began to get worried because it seemed like their guide didn't see the rock. He's been on that river thousands of times. Certainly he must see the rock, but he didn't seem like he was seeing the rock because he was was steered right toward the rock. And as it got closer and closer, finally the passengers began to scream and to yell at the guide, the rock, the rock. But he kept right on going straight toward him. Then at the very last moment, he took his paddle, he made a little maneuver with it, turned the boat, of course, sideways to the rock, and then quickly pivoted around the rock and then downstream, safely toward home. Passengers, when they finished their rafting adventure, they asked him why he had taken the river that particular way and got so close to the rock, and he told them that he knew that from their perspective, what he was doing didn't make any sense at all but that they needed to trust him because he was a guide who had rafted that river thousands of times and that that was the only way to get safely around that rock. There are times in our lives when what God is doing in us and to us and with us doesn't make any sense either. That's when we likewise have to trust God as our God. And the story of Joseph in the Old Testament is a great illustration of that. Certainly there were moments in Joseph's life when God didn't make sense to him. He was the favorite son of Jacob, yet he would undergo three different trials through no fault of his own that would take him far away from his home and ultimately land him in an Egyptian prison. Certainly to a young man of great faith like Joseph, those were the times in his life when God did not make sense. In the 14 final chapters of the book of Genesis, we read Joseph's story, and what we learn from it is simply this. We can weather those times when God doesn't make sense to us by living out the beliefs and behaviors of Joseph. We can weather those times when God doesn't make sense to us by living out the beliefs and behaviors of Joseph. So this morning, we're going to spend our time looking at what Joseph believed and how Joseph behaved. Because his beliefs determined his behavior. And it needs to be the same way for us. So the first thing we learn from Joseph's story is this. Trials and sufferings come to us all regardless of our level of spiritual maturity. 
Trials and sufferings come to us all regardless of our level of spiritual maturity. Now, some of us think that the more mature we get spiritually, the closer to God that we grow, the less we'll have trials in our lives. I'm sorry to tell you, that's not the way it works. Sometimes the closer we grow to God, the more we have trials in our lives. In fact, God uses those trials to draw us closer to Himself. Joseph was the firstborn son of Jacob's favorite wife, and I say favorite because Jacob had four. Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. So Joseph became the favorite son of his father, Jacob. His father showed his favoritism toward Joseph by making him a a coat of many colors that you've heard about. So true to life is the story of Joseph that has been featured many times on stage and screen. Several years ago, there was a Broadway play called Joseph and His Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Cosmo Kramer was a character from the sitcom Seinfeld. And my mother loved that show. See, because my mother was from New York City too. She was born and raised there. And she could really relate to the characters in that show. And she loved that show, especially Kramer. And there's an episode in which Kramer got a hold of Joseph's Technicolor dream coat, and it got him in a lot of trouble too. So not only did Joseph have trouble with that coat, but Kramer had trouble with that coat as well. The coat of many colors that his father created for Joseph certainly made his brothers jealous. In fact, they grew to hate him eventually. And it was obvious from early time in his life What also made them jealous, it was obvious from the earliest days of his life that God had his hand on Joseph. Remember his dreams? Some of us may doubt his uh, wisdom in sharing those dreams with his brother. But he had dreams. In one of the dreams he said this, We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. That made him a favorite of his brother's. Then in the second dream, Joseph told his brothers that the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to him. The eleven stars, of course, obviously a reference to his eleven brothers. Again, Joseph is not growing in favor with his brothers. They're disliking him more and more every day. So it doesn't surprise us, of course, what ends up happening to Joseph. Joseph tells this story about the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars to his brothers, but also his father hears it. And his father Jacob, like Mary when she was confronted by Simeon in the temple with the baby Jesus, Simeon prophesied certain things about Jesus, and though Mary didn't understand them at the moment, the Bible says she treasured them in her heart. And I'm sure that Jacob treasured these dreams that his son Joseph had in his heart. They weren't just the wild imaginations of youth. There was more to them than that. But it doesn't surprise us when Joseph went to find his brothers as they were tending the family flock and they looked for a way to destroy him. Look with me, if you will, at Genesis chapter 37, verses 23 through 27. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into a cistern. Now the cistern was empty, there was no water in it. And as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were in their way, or they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hand on him, for after all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood, 
and his other brothers agreed with him. And then fast forward up to verse 31. Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornamented robe which back to their father, and they said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is not your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials and the captain of the guard. Joseph ends up as a slave in Egypt. He's bought by an Egyptian named Potiphar, who's the captain of Pharaoh's royal guard. But Joseph is an industrious young man of integrity and ingenuity. So he doesn't stay in that lowly position long, but he rises day by day until he finally becomes the chief administrator of Potiphar's household. But he's got one big problem. If you know the story, you know what the problem is. Perhaps I should say you know who the problem is. It's Potiphar's wife. See, Joseph was handsome. He was a good-looking fellow. And he was well-built. You know, kind of like me. What are you laughing about? He was a handsome, good-looking fella. And Potiphar's wife had eyes for him. And day after day, she tried to seduce him. And day after day, he resisted. But there came that fateful day when Joseph and Potiphar's wife were in the house alone together. And she reached over for him in a lustful way grabbed this cloak and he, wanting to avoid that temptation, ran out of the house and left his cloak in her hand. And we know what happened in the aftermath of that. We pick up on that in verse, chapter 39, verses 13 through 20b. It says this to us. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and run out of the house, she called her, husband, her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought here to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. And when he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. And then she told him that story. That Hebrew slave that you bought came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. And when his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. And Joseph's master took him out and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Potiphar's wife, of course, lied about Joseph. He was the innocent party and she was the guilty party, but Potiphar didn't know that. So Joseph is sent to prison for something he did not do. And while Joseph is in prison, God was with him, and the warden came to respect and appreciate Joseph and ultimately made Joseph the manager of the entire prison in terms of the prisoners. He's in charge of all the prisoners there. One day, Joseph receives two new inmates. They were the royal baker and the royal cupbearer, attendants of Pharaoh himself. But they had offended Pharaoh somehow. I I imagine it probably wasn't hard to offend Pharaoh. They offended Pharaoh somehow and were put in prison. And both of them had dreams. And Joseph was able to interpret both of their dreams. And things happened just as Joseph said they would. Genesis chapter 40, verses 20 through 23 says... Now the third day was Pharaoh's birthday, and he gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. 
but he restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that once again he put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he impaled, he executed the chief baker, just as Joseph has said to them in his interpretation. And the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. That's now the third time that Joseph has suffered in innocence. Certainly, he must have thought that these bad things were happening to him and they didn't make any sense at all. And sometimes we feel that way too. You know, Persian rugs are woven in an unusual way. The fabric is stretched over a large vertical rack and a master weaver stands on one side of the fabric while his helpers stand on the other side. And the helpers actually do all of the weaving as they pull the yarn through the fabric But the master weaver on the front side of the fabric does all the instructing. He tells them where to pull the yarn through. And it is not until the end of the day that the helpers get to go around to the good side of the carpet and see the beautiful pattern they've helped to create. And life is like that. B.M. Franklin wrote a poem about that process and how it applies to our lives. It's called the tapestry poem, and it goes like this. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern that he planned. God has a plan for your life. You're on the back side of that plan and it looks nutty to you. It doesn't make any sense at all. Looks like a bunch of kindergartners plan that plan for your life. But on the upper side where God sees it, it's a beautiful pattern for your life. God wants to use that in order to use you in His kingdom. Second thing we learn from Joseph is that life's adversities either make us bitter or better. Life's adversities either make us bitter or better. A 1960 episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents called Cell 227 depicts the case of Professor Herbert Morrison who was on death row awaiting his execution. His lawyer is trying to get him a last-minute stay of execution, but the professor says he doesn't want one. While most of his fellow prisoners on death row deeply desire a stay of execution the occupant of cell 227 says he's innocent and has told his lawyer he will not accept the stay of execution he will only accept a full pardon in the prison there's a good-hearted guard who seeks to encourage the inmates and when the time for his execution arrives morrison who believes that if he is about to die for murder he might as well murder somebody grabs the guard and strangles him to death The moment the guard dies, the warden arrives to let Morrison know that new evidence has been found in his case and that he's going to be granted a full pardon. Unfortunately, he is now guilty of another murder. Professor Morrison became bitter in the midst of life's adversities, but Joseph didn't do that. In fact, though he was sold into slavery by his own brothers and then falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and went to prison, Joseph became better through his adversities in life. Listen to his story. And how he got better rather than bitter. We look beginning in verse 2 of chapter 39. The Lord was with Joseph. And he prospered. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him. And that the Lord gave him success in everything he did. Joseph found favor in his eyes. And became his attendant. And Potiphar put him in charge of his household. And entrusted to his care everything he owned. 
From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. And the blessing of the Lord was on everything that Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. And then verses 20c through 23 of that same chapter. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. There's an apocryphal moment. That means a make-believe moment. There's an apocryphal moment in the animated movie, Joseph the Dreamer, that depicts Joseph now in prison for a crime he didn't commit. Like all of us would be, he is both angry and frustrated and discouraged as he wastes away in Pharaoh's prison. There is a small tree that has begun to grow in Joseph's cell. And in a moment of anger and frustration, Joseph stomps on that small tree and crushes it. Watch what happens as Joseph realizes that somehow God knows better than he does. I thought I did what's right I thought I had the answers I thought I chose the surest road But that road brought me here So I put up the fight And told you how to help me Now just when I have given up The truth is coming clear
Joseph chose to become better. The question for us, of course, is what will we choose when we face life's adversities? Thirdly, oftentimes life's senseless setbacks prepare us for a greater realm of service. Oftentimes life's senseless setbacks prepare us for a greater realm of service. We saw in our first point for the 13 years between age 17 and age 30, Joseph suffered three senseless setbacks. And by human standards, they didn't make sense to him at all. But God has a way of making sense out of such things. Two two years after the royal cupbearer had been reinstated to his duties, Pharaoh had a dream. And the cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I should have told you this before. No one else could interpret Pharaoh's dream, but the cupbearer said, I know someone. He was in prison and he interpreted my dream and the dream of the royal baker. And it happened just as he said it would happen. And so Pharaoh sent for Joseph. And he tells Pharaoh that there will be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. And that is this meteorological and agricultural phenomenon will take place around the world. So he counsels Pharaoh to the excess grain during the good years. And we come back, of course, to the text in chapter 41, verses 37 through 40. As the text says the following to us, The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. And so Pharaoh asked them, Can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? And Pharaoh places everything in Egypt regarding agriculture and management under the hands of Joseph. Now, can you imagine that? Here's a man, it would be like for us, a man walking out of prison one day, and the same day he's made vice president of the United States. Of course, some of us think that some of our politicians ought to be in prison. But regardless of what you might think about that, I expected a bigger laugh on that one. Regardless of what you might think about that, do you realize that the time that Joseph spent in prison was his preparation for God's making him vice president or vice Pharaoh of Egypt. Let me share with you a great principle that goes along with this. How you respond to setbacks determines how far they set you back. How you respond to setbacks determines how far they set you back. Joseph could have been set back a whole lot farther had he responded wrongly to the setbacks of his life. It took 13 years. Could have taken a whole lot more. As Joseph is in prison being prepared, he's in slavery being prepared for the role through which he would save his family, the chosen people of God, as well as multiplied millions of thousands of other families. Joseph was God's appointed vessel for that job. But if Joseph had reacted badly to his setbacks, it would have taken a lot longer than 13 years to prepare him for that history-changing role that God wanted him to play. D.L. Moody wisely observed about Moses this thing. He said, Moses spent the first 40 years of his life in Pharaoh's court thinking he was somebody. The second 40 years of his life in the desert learning he was nobody. And the last 40 years of his life discovering what God can do with a somebody who found out he was a nobody. God can do great things through you in your life. But you have to be willing to submit to him both in the good times and in the bad times. Lastly. We learn learn that like Joseph, we must trust that God's plan for our lives is good, even when it does not make sense at the moment. We must trust that God's plan for our lives is good, even when it does not make sense at the moment. In chapter 42, verses 1 through 6, Joseph's brothers go down to Egypt because the worldwide famine is on. These are the seven bad years. And nobody else is prepared except Joseph has prepared Egypt for this hard time around the world. And his brothers... On their father's advice, go to Egypt to buy food. 
And Joseph is the one who greets them there. And Joseph, of course, in the beginning, does not immediately reveal his self or himself to his brothers. He has a little fun with that, I think. He waits for a while and plays some games with them. And finally, he reveals himself, and there's that very tender moment where they weep together, and he sends them back to their father, Jacob, and says, send Jacob here. Send Jacob here. Notice what the text tells us. It says, and God spoke to Israel, that's Jacob, in a vision at night, and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied, I am the God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you to Egypt with, bring you back up to Egypt, or from Egypt again, and Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. That's a very tender touch in the story. Joseph will close your eyes in death, Jacob. This son that you thought you'd lost and would never see again will be the very one who does that. The story of Joseph closes with the final chapter of the book of Genesis. And it talks to us in chapter 50 about Joseph being with his brothers and everything's going well for them in Egypt. And Jacob finally dies and Joseph, according to his promise, takes him back to the promised land and buries him there. But when they're coming back home, his brothers begin to think, uh-oh, dad's dead. What will our brother Joseph do to us now? He wasn't going to do anything to us while our father was living. But what will he do to us now? And so they they send word to him that they will be his slaves. They don't deserve anything else. They did some horrible things to him. They need to be his slaves. And what he says to them is incredible. In verses 19 and 20 of chapter 50, the Bible records the words of Joseph. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Look again at that wonderful 50th verse. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. That verse in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, is the Old Testament equivalent to the New Testament verse, Romans 8, 28. For we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to His purpose. Samuel L. Bringle was a minister who wrote a classic little devotional book called Helps to Holiness. The unusual thing about his writing that book was that he wrote it while he was recovering from being hit in, a head, in the head by a whole paving brick one day when he was out street preaching, kind of like John Wesley did. John Wesley got good at dodging those bricks. They threw a lot of them at him. Well, Samuel Bringle wasn't as good. Unfortunately, the brick hit him, and he was months in his recovery. But the Bringles used to say if there had been no little brick, there would have been no little book. If there had been no little brick, there would have been no little book. As a matter of fact, Mrs. Bringle kept the brick. And guess what Bible verse she wrote on top of it? That's right. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. But as for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Such a biblical attitude expresses our faith in God even when things He allows in our lives don't seem to make sense. You see, the truth, let's be honest, the truth is that Calvary didn't make sense either. Why would God allow His only Son to be brutally executed on a cross by people like you and me? We know the answer to that question. Unbelievers ask it all the time. But we know the answer to that question. It's found in the best-known verse of the Bible. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. 
God's got a purpose for your life. Just as He had a purpose for the life of His Son. And you can believe and you can bet that God's purpose for your life has something to do with redemption. Just as the purpose of His Son's life had. God wants to use you in this world. And to get you ready for that, sometimes God has to put you through some hard times. It's like athletic training, isn't it? Nobody likes the training when they're going through it. They like the results it produces. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time that you've given us this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would help us now to make the decisions that would please you. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.